Hello, this is Chase Bailey of Left Bank Films. Our third episode of our podcast, The Love of Film, deals with our favorite directors of the 1940s. Our podcasters tonight include Freeman Fletcher, Todd Hunter, Dennis Collins Johnson, Brigitte Abreu, Kate Jurdy, and myself, Chase Bailey. Thank you. I hope you enjoy it. So I will start it out tonight with my number two pick of my favorite director of the 1940s. And my number two pick is John Huston. John Huston, who did Treasure the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, uh, Maltese Falcon, etc. I also have a long list of how many films. I mean, these guys did a lot of work in the 40s. And I was really impressed uh, with, uh, with all of them, especially John Huston. I think he did an extremely good job with Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, Key Largo, um, uh, Maltese Falcon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did anybody so that's my number two pick. Did anybody freeze besides me on that one? What? Everybody froze for about 10 seconds. Can you hear me? Yeah, everything's fine now, but boy, I... I, I I thought it was the Twilight Zone all of a sudden. But. Oh, really? <laughs> you can I hear Todd. I Everything else doesn't matter. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I, I no didn't pressure, see Todd. anything or hear anything. Not at all. I have no idea what you said, but go right ahead. <laughs> okay. Any comments on John Houston? I mean, uh, no. you know what? Why don't you go first, Freeman? Oh, um, I didn't. I, I, I he made some great Thank movies, you. and he's made a lot more that I've been meaning to watch for a long time. But Key Largo is great. Maltese Falcon's great. Great pick. Great pick. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Now uh, he comes up. <laughs> now Brigitte, will you give your number two pick? Well, my number two director is Hitchcock. Uh, okay. He was going to be on the list. I didn't know if he was going to be number one or number two. It seems like such a hard call. Um, but I I love all of his films. And the ones in the 40s are, you know, they're still infused with his style, even though I, my favorites aren't in the 40s. But he, for example, Spellbound, he's just so creative with the way that he uses a camera. And I don't know of any other director at that time that was using it the way that he was. Um, there's, I don't know, this might be a spoiler, but there's a moment in Spellbound where um, a character turns a gun on themselves and you see it, you like see it in the camera, like the gun turns and points at you, the audience. And um, it's just so exciting and visceral. And I don't uh, remember that, that, that scene. Yeah, it's, it's right at the end. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, Spellbound, and, I mean, Hitchcock Hitchcock was an honorable mention for me. He didn't make yeah. the top two. Interesting. Uh, but, I mean, he got so much better in the 50s and 60s. I agree. And that's why it's <laughs> it was hard to say for the 40s because the only other one he did in the 40s was in... Did he What was it well, called? You, you got to um, think about... I should have brought up my... You got to think about uh, Shadow of a Doubt, uh, blah, 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 Notorious. Mm -hmm. Notorious. That's what it was, not Insidious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Notorious. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's fantastic as well. Just the, I don't know. I've always been in love with the kinds of stories that he told. And uh, that includes this decade, even though I agree with you that his style didn't really crystallize until later. But um, it's, uh, it's just really exciting. I think he has a very visceral way of telling a story. You can tell he knows what he wants. I mean, that he's, he was famous for that, for knowing the pictures exactly. And you feel it. You feel it when you watch it, um, which is what makes it such a good, I don't know, he's just perfect for the thriller, you know, suspense. It's just. He, he, was, he was one of the best. Yeah, chef's uh, kiss to Alfred about his overall, yeah. you know, his overall oeuvre. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, he did that extremely well. And like I said, Hitchcock did not make my top two. 
Yeah, but this is good. This is why it. we have so everyone gets mentioned. And I know, I know you'll have an actress in yours who is not in my top two. So, so Todd, yes, your number two pick. My number two pick. Okay, um, just uh, to to go give a little disclaimer because as Kate and Chase know, I love disclaimers. Um, I had to focus in terms of directors. I had to focus on, especially as we're going into like eventually the fifties and the sixties some of my favorite directors will be popping up again and again. And I want to um, focus on decades that I think certain directors were the strongest, at least as I considered it. So for example, like Brigitte brought up Hitchcock. I will probably eventually bring up Hitchcock, but not in the forties in in terms of his output. I agree. I really tried to. Agree, Todd. What's up? I'm, I'm, we're both agreeing with you. Oh, okay. Uh, well, hey. Uh, so, <laughs> what else? What else can it be? I'm taking what I can. Which is fair for Chase. So take take Chase doing that. You know, like. <laughs> Boy, she is blasting me tonight. Yeah, she loves you. <laughs> um, so, with that said, my number two for the 1940s um, was uh, Michael Curtiz. Um, for two, and, and I am pronouncing his last name correctly, right? I yeah. I, I always pronounce it Curtis, it's, but it's, I, it's I don't know. It's okay. Curtis. No, I it's think Curtis. that's how it's pronounced. It's Curtis. It's Curtis. Curtis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dennis would know. He's older than I, I. I would know, but I'm just guessing. But I sound like I know. No, I believe um, it. Okay, so I don't think he heard that. You know what? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna help everybody right now and double check the pronunciation because you know if people are going to be watching this then they we should at least know what we're sounding like michael curtis 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 <laughs> it's curtis it is yeah it's curtis okay great okay so I, uh but i think this is I, all staying in i'll please <laughs> let it all stay in um at all he, the, the reason being is Casablanca and Mildred Pierce. Those are the two yeah. films for me. Uh, Casablanca, I could go on and on about the importance of it as a film, but also when it comes down to it, I don't, I'm not sure you can pick out a more, the best example of 1940s studio filmmaking than Casablanca. It's just one of the pinnacles. It's, it's, it's a great movie you can watch any day of the week. It's timeless, even though it's very much of a particular time. Um, and Mildred Pierce, it's, it, 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 you have the, 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 the lead performance, um, you know, by uh, uh, Joan Crawford, and it it takes uh, a a woman's perspective in a, in a period of time that the perspective wasn't really uh, uh, given a whole lot to women performers at the time. And Joan Crawford is such a strong performer, and the 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 uh, the plot the the plot of the film is just is so captivating, I've always thought. And the fact that Michael Curtiz could take two different types of films like that, not let alone the rest of the films that he was doing in the 1940s, but to take two films like Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart, you know, real man's man being the lead. And then you have Mildred Pierce with this very strong women lead. It's a... I think I think he was very groundbreaking in the 1940s in the, in the films that Michael uh, Curtiz directed. So that is ultimately why I'm choosing him for number two. Yeah, you know the the other thing that that uh, Curtiz did. Uh, it's going to take me a while to remember to say, correctly, <laughs> but uh, he did Yankee Doodle, and yeah. and that direction. Even though I didn't like the film, it was so over the top, but he handled the musical really well. He operated in a lot of different genres. He's yeah. he was a very, very strong filmmaker. That's why and I like I grab- Yeah, He's yeah. also I, responsible I, 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 for... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Frank. 
No, I was um, finished. Go ahead. <laughs> he's also responsible for one of the best shots of the 30s, which is the in the sword duel at the end of um, The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Oh. I mean, shit, he made the Robin Hood movie that <laughs> he made like one of the first and to this day, the best Robin Hood movie. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's only been rivaled by an animated fox since. Um, but yeah, there's a great shot at, uh, during the climactic duel with Errol Flynn and uh, Basil Rathbone where they're fighting and they sort of fight out of frame and their shadows are cast on this large pillar as they duel past it and then they duel back into frame and wasn't it wasn't it on a circular staircase well that that's part of it it's a very long duel yeah it's <laughs> a very long duel i enjoyed the hell out of that scene oh yeah avengers of ridley, ridley scott is gonna pop in and say fuck you to freeman about <laughs> well, i'm gonna say fuck you back to ridley scott <laughs> his movies fuck this year alone <laughs> Okay, Kate, it's your turn. Number two. Um, so number two would be Frank Capra. Ah, nice. How can you not, right? <laughs> I mean, he kind of dominated the 30s, 40s, and 50s in a way um, with American cinema. Um, I mean, we talked about, I think, Arsenic and Old Lace was my number two, right, for um, comedies. <laughs> And um, Meet John Doe, I saw a real long time ago. So I would need to revisit that. Um, also, It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, the list goes on. His films, and I think we, we touched on this too before, that the films of the 1940s were very progressive. They were kind of, they're oftentimes compared to what the films of the 70s kind of brought to the front, you know, and was kind of, you know, experimental. It was a little bit um, freer. It wasn't as conservative as, as, say, what the 50s and maybe early 60s brought to the table. Though I feel like there's films in there, too, that kind of pushed, you know, pushed the envelope. But um, I, I love the films of the 40s, just like the 70s in, in a different way. And I would say the 70s is probably my favorite decade. Um, but yeah, Frank Capra. Anyone want to add anything to? No, I know a, we all love him. That I mean, was a fantastic choice. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I my one of my favorite nineteen forties films, which we've touched on before, is uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." You know, um, and it's funny. I was actually playing uh, playing it uh, not too long ago in my house, and uh, um, uh, th there was a comment made while I was playing it during the whole scene where uh, uh, George Bailey is like having his meltdown, you know, after he goes home that night and he's afraid he's going to jail and, you know, and, and he lashes out at the family. There was a comment made in my, in my house of, man, that's, that's getting dark. You know, <laughs> like they're, they're, it's, it's, it still hits today in terms of the emotions that Capra uh, can elicit out of, out of a, out of a scene. And, uh, and I think Capra gets uh, kind of a, a, a broad rap about being overly sentimental um, and uh, almost like melodramatic. Um, but I, I, I've never really felt that way about him as a filmmaker. I think he, uh, as one who was in the war um, and, and saw the horrors of war and what it could do to the human spirit, I feel like he's... Uh, He's a filmmaker that understood the human experience, and he he didn't uh, he didn't see any need to gloss it down one way or another. If things get rough or if things get emotional, he he went there, you know. Um, so I I think history's actually been very kind uh, to to uh, Capra, where initially, you know, as you know, it's a wonderful life bombed when it came out. It like oh, it did. It destroyed the studio. Yeah, the original studio. Uh, I forget which studio it was. It, it, it wasn't RKO? I don't think it was RKO. I think it was Liberty Films or something. I don't know. Um, but it, it sank the, the, the studio. Um, 
which uh, there's a whole other story as to how it, the It's a Wonderful Life got into the public domain. Um, but uh, I, I think It's a Wonderful Life is one of the, the greatest films of, of the 20th century. Um, so I'm all there for Kate's pick. You got it. Yeah, I agree, Todd. And, and you've touched on a really good point about, because I have a tendency, I mean, not in film, but just in general, and to kind of block out bad things. It's just how my mind acts and works. And so it's interesting and <coughs> true that you brought up the fact that he does go there. Like a lot of people remember the sentimentality, you know, his the famous kind of Capricorni is his nickname. And, you know, with the... I just think in general, he isn't afraid. To, and it does get pretty dark. It's a wonderful life. I mean, parts of Arsenic and Old Lace get pretty dark, too, as a comedy. Um, so, yeah, you bring up some really good points. And I think that his films are relevant. They're still completely and totally relevant today, which is the sign of just true greatness on many levels, in my opinion. Absolutely. And he did by the way, produce and direct a lot of war movies. So oh, interesting. Very well, active. Well, it's interesting. And I wonder with, with the mentioning of the bombing of um, the tanking, rather, <laughs> bombing tanking of It's a Wonderful Life. And I know it was more the 60s and 70s with the emergence of, of um, the Hollywood New Wave, American New Wave cinema. But I'm wondering if that was kind of the beginning of his kind of down demise to, I hate to use it in those terms, but, you know, he, there was challenges in his, ultimately, you know, he stopped making films, but his heyday was 30s, 40s. He had some films in the 50s, but I'm wondering if that was the start of the, the kind of downturn of Capra's films and getting, do you know about any of the history of that, Todd? I don't, no. I, no neither I actually, do I. I'd have to look it up wasn't aware and another one i want to mention also but not from the 1940s because um was lost horizon i loved lot and that also it takes in the whole gamut of emotions and exploration with um life and that's a great one if you guys haven't seen it it's 1937 well we're gonna see that one Ronald is that the, the Shangri-La? Yes. Yeah, Ronald uh, Coleman. Yes, I remember that. I, I have to go back and relook at it because it's been 100 years since I've seen it. I think you would love it again, Chase. Yeah, I'm sure I will. Uh, Freeman, number two. Uh, so my number two uh, also comes with a disclaimer, so... <laughs> Fall on your lead, Todd. Um, <laughs> late last year, I tried making a short film that uh, it kind of went terribly, the production, uh, due to COVID. And, um, you too? And uh, I, it was a really kind of bittersweet experience. But uh, one of the things afterwards that really charged me up was watching on the new uh, Incredible Criterion Susan Cain release was watching uh, Roger Ebert's commentary track about it, which just touches on uh, my number two pick, Orson Welles, and how this was like his first real movie and um, just how much care and every shot every little detail there's something fascinating uh to learn about it and it was just a really um i was really jealous because he was younger than me when he made it so fuck him but um <laughs> it it's uh it, I, it's an incredible movie and also <laughs> orson welles other movies from the 40s um like the magnificent ambersons and lady from shanghai which were kind of notoriously all of his movies, I think, after Susan Kane, because Susan Kane was such a nightmare and uh, Orson Welles was such a nightmare, um, were chopped to pieces. But I think it it is sort of a testament to him that they remain thoroughly watchable movies. Um, they're not perfect. They're not. He was never able to do Susan Kane again because he never had that level of control again. But um yeah, I just a really terrific uh, 
uh, 40s run and um, a really terrific commentary track. I'd recommend everybody. I think it's been on like every release of Susan Cain ever. So um, I would I would recommend listening to it. But yeah, Orson Welles is my number two pick. Fantastic pick. Fantastic filming. Um, any other comments? I don't think we need to comment on that. Orson Welles. Yeah, I uh, mean, he, cool, he's... Cool, he's... Thing about, cool thing about Orson is all those 40s films, with the exception of Emerson's where he's narrating, is he's acting in them too. I mean, really, you know? To be a great <laughs> director and act in your own films is really really tough. I haven't done a lot of that, but I've certainly uh, directed myself live and acted and it's, it's hard. Um, but the fact that he could pull all that off and continually, you know, on, on into the future as well, um, that sets him apart from everybody else. As far as I'm concerned, when you're wearing two hats and you do them really great like that, um, that, that tends to elevate, uh, elevate both of them, I think. Yeah, I lo loved him. He was one of the first directors that we studied in my film studies class. And um, we saw the Ambersons and um, Citizen Kane on the big screen, which was pretty cool. And I've got to be honest, um, Freeman, that's a great pick. I actually need to go back and visit more of his 40s films. Yeah, me too. Those are like the three that I've seen, but uh, they're a lot of fun, all of them. And even when he isn't, directing he's acting and stuff like the third man where he plays like one of the greatest movie villains ever um so yeah just a tour de force of talent but especially as a director well i still you know it's like even though i didn't uh select citizen kane for my favorite film of the 1940s even though it really is um uh, casablanca and citizen kane i left off my list for obvious reasons, because they're my two favorite films of ever. Uh, Citizen Kane still to this day is, every time I watch it, and I've watched it multiple times, I see nuances of the cinematography and the direction. Just seeing the depth of some of the shots that, that Orson did, you know, with um, Joseph Cotton, you know, way back in the distance and then the levels and depths of the the, the light and shadows yeah. it was so amazing to me i just every time i see it i go wow how did they do that and it took a hard director and a cinematographer to work together to get that done it was it's still an amazing film every time i see it and on top of everything else, I mean, as Orson Welles is director and actor, Citizen Kane, Amerson, Stranger, Lady from Shanghai, Macbeth, um, you know, on top of that, he's in his 20s. I mean, come on. You know, John, John Ford, John Ford was directing when he was born, when when Orson Welles was born. So for him to pull all that together, I mean, it's pretty tough to, to vote against Orson, whatever you're talking about. Yep. Yep. Well, Dennis, you're on next. Well, <laughs> I, I had to, you know, it's, there's so many choices and, and when they're limited to two, I think we started out with five choices, didn't we? With, uh, back with films and stuff. No, no, no. It was always three. Uh, well, I, I, I hallucinated on five then, but, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I had to discard, uh, just for, for my own purposes, Capra, Chaplin, Curtiz and Hawks all great directors and you know why would you discard them for anything but since we're limited um and uh then as as happened last time i kind of have my my favorites in front of me and i kind of pick at the moment what is going to be second first because it's so hard to choose but i do it under pressure but um you know, John Houston certainly was a good choice, but I, I can't pick him as second. He he may uh, he may bubble to the top, but it's pretty tough to beat Maltese Falcon, Treasure of Sierra Madre, and Key Largo. I mean, they're three of my favorite films anyway. But having said that, I think I'm going to go with number two with Preston Sturgis. Oh. Because uh, Preston Sturgis had a, a, a great, fairly brief career. He, um, you know, uh, I... I may have mentioned before the first time I saw one of his films, which was the Palm beach story. 
I was doing shows in uh, in Philadelphia, and we had a, a hotel room for the night, and um, it was on the the uh, cable that the hotel uh, offered. And I'd never seen it. I didn't know about him. And I watched that and I went, wow, that's great. And then I read about him and found out he only did like six or seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe seven uh, worthwhile films that are actually great, each one of them. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to watch those all at once. And I spread it out over 15 years. I'm careful not to watch, not to watch them all, <laughs> all uh, even though I was really interested. Palm Beach Story, I think, is still my favorite because it was the first one I saw. But Preston Sturgis, um, you know, started out as a writer and he, he won an Academy Award for, um, was it the great McGinty? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and what he did was uh, he actually, uh, he, uh, uh, he, he directed, what was it? He, um, oh, he gave the screenplay for a buck to the studio if they'd let him direct. And that got him into directing. So, you know, that was a pretty, pretty sharp thing to do. But um, another thing I, I really always identified with him was uh, he, he, you know, he went up like a like a firework and uh, came down like a like a, a dead firework. He, um, wow. <laughs> you know, he, he ended up broke. The IRS uh, basically pauperized him and uh, he died broke and pretty much unappreciated, uh, except by people who remembered his films. So uh, I have to make him number two. Um, well, Lady Eve was one of my favorite films. Yeah. His comedy, there's no, I just have a quote here from him. Um, his golden rule for successful comedy, a pretty girl is better than a plain one. A leg is better than an arm. A bedroom is better than a living room. An arrival is better than a departure. A birth is better than a death. A chase is better than a chat. A dog is better than a landscape. A kitten is better than a dog. A baby is better than a kitten. A kiss is better than a baby. And a pratfall is better than anything. <laughs> and, uh, there's there's some good good rules for comedy because i love comedy. I, I love love comedies i think that that's my favorite because they're nothing wrong with dramas and i love those too but they're more they're more uplifting you know if you uh, when you laugh after you've laughed for a while you feel better than after you've cried for a while let's put it that way so uh so good old preston is uh is my number two uh i could have picked him as number one but you know the competition is real stiff so um <laughs> so there you have it well fantastic okay my number one pick as best director is michael curtiz ah, nice <laughs> well i you know i have to because of casablanca it's one of my favorite films of all time it's just i just i just have to i mildred pierce uh again a good film uh, but Casablanca, I think he knocked it out of the park and nobody expected it. Yeah. Nobody expected it. But, you know, the cast, the way he melded the cast together, the way he moved along the story, um, uh, you know, using Humphrey uh, as his centerpiece, but he really moved the story along from start to finish. And the start... Uh, act one, act two, act three just was so well done and it just flowed as a story and you felt the pain and agony uh, of the, the, the romantic uh, between Ingrid and Humphrey during the film and uh, we'll always have Paris. I just, uh, you know, it's just, it's just one of my favorite films of all time because of the story and the way it's told. Uh, also, and the direct, way it's shot. directing something when you, you the writers are desperately writing something the night before that's going to be shot the next day. I mean, that's improvisation in a lot of ways. You're not oh, it was. to decide it was. shots and stuff. It's like, and not even how the ending. So how do I direct the actors? I don't know if, you know, Humphrey's going to lose the, the woman or gain her or she's going to, you know, you don't know what the heck's going on. So even more kudos for that. Yep. Just everything. I just, I, I like the way that the, uh, the French policeman for Casablanca, uh, I've forgotten the, the actor's name. I should slap myself in the face for not remembering his name, but I am 75 years old. So well, as Gene used to say, I'm old, you'll forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing came together for me. Uh, and we've already spoken about Casablanca and Curtis. 
So what is your number one? Yes. So my number one director is Frank Capra to (laughs) to no one's surprise. (laughs) No one's surprise. No one's surprise. I I think it's uh, it's funny because I hadn't heard the term uh, Capricorny until um, Kate, I think, is the one who said it, that his films are kind of like sentimental and, you know, corny or whatever but i that's my shit so i no apologies um, no apologies necessary and i've never no. heard capricorny right yeah Did I, I, say that? I was i was kind of insulted i was like mm, i love him <laughs> so i guess he did arsenic he and known. old lace he did he right did some, he did a lot of war movies too yes he did and yes he was very involved in the sort of like american propaganda yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, after yeah. the war of like trying to, you know, educate people on our viewpoint of the war and that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I don't know, just the way that he tells a story in the same in the same way that Alfred Hitchcock is like perfect for his genre. I think Frank Capra just the way that he tells the story, it's like glass. Like you can see right, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's just such a clear picture. You're not being confused by things. You're not getting um, there are no flaws. You know what I mean? It's just this beautiful, let me present you with this picture of the story and these people and and what happened. And, take a wonderful life. I mean, the way he like, dissected yeah. that film and and told the story was so it was methodical. It was yeah. logical. It was, yeah. uh, it, like you said, glass. Yeah. I like yeah. that analogy. Yeah. yeah. And it helps you to look right through at the picture and there's no, it's not like he doesn't muddy the waters that they may appear deep. You know, it's, he just keeps it to what it is and it, and it hits me every time it's uh, yeah. tugs on my heartstrings. He reaches through the ages and tugs on my heartstrings. <laughs> every time so i don't i make no apologies for frank capra being you don't, my you number don't one. need to you don't Thank need you. to frank <laughs> capra frank capra was definitely well i told you was one of my honorable mentions yes yeah one of my so top incredible mentions i mean wonderful yeah. life was such a wonderful film yes yeah. yes yeah yeah and, and that he can do that and arsenic and old lace in the same decade and they're they're two incredibly different films but they're both done the same way so clear it's just so clear. And because it's so clearly presented, the writing and the acting can just shine through. And he's he's just, he's a perfect sort of director in terms of that he was like a channel for whatever story he was telling. He would you just know, in some ways, in, in, in some ways, directors that do that kind of bug me, especially really? current directors that really? tell a story so logical, methodical, they follow the, they yeah. follow the arcs. They just go point A to point B to point C to point right. B to point E. Sometimes I get a little perturbed with them because I, I would that. rather like uh, I would rather like directors that make me think a little bit more. Yeah. But yeah. Frank Capra is one of those guys. I mean, I loved Ar- Arsenic and Olays. Is one of my top comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, me okay. too. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, you know the way that he directed that was so much fun he, yeah. he, he had fun watching yeah absolutely in, fact, in spite of it being dark yeah yeah <laughs> he made it fun you know it's funny that you mentioned that there are directors like modern directors that do that that are just very logical um one of my favorite modern directors that does that is chris columbus and his films are just so they're the same way they're it's like glass you just look through the frame at the picture and and it's not hiding anything from you it's not muddling anything it's just like let me just present it to you the story is good enough as it is you'll feel something the dialogue will lead you through it yeah and the actors get a chance to just elevate it and to to live in it and i mean that's how i feel it's the first two harry potter films are my favorite of the series what what is your favorite columbus film oh gosh i mean genuinely it might be the sorcerer's stone <laughs> it really might be the second one that was the second no, one. no 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 the first the, the first one yes the, the very first, first one sorcerer's stone i don't think anyone else what could have captured one? the magic uh chamber of secrets 
Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So he did the first two and the, they're both so good. And I don't think anyone else could have captured the magic of what that book was for me as a child other than him. I mean, it was just perfect. And then of course there's Home Alone, which I watched again recently because it was the holidays. He and... directed Home Alone? Yeah, right. It's so good. And what an example of a director like Frank Capra who could do really, really like hilarious slapstick comedy and also something that's so heartfelt it feels like this journey like a hero's journey like what Jimmy Stewart goes through in uh, you know it's a wonderful life and same thing with Harry Potter I mean these directors have a very specific uh specialty and it's like so close to my heart that there that there are these kinds of you know clear as glass see see right to the point uh but it's there's a sentimentality maybe um, that's that also goes with it. So I, I get the name Capricorn, but I, you know, I, uh, I cherish it. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So Todd, you're on now. Your number one pick for best director of the '40s. Uh, I mean, I have played him on stage, and um, when I was studying film. Uh, I, I, I had a professor at UNH who, uh, the first semester there, he was teaching what would be the equivalent of an intro to film from NYU because he was an ed- from NYU. And then subsequently, uh, UNH wanted him to dumb down the course the second year. Um, but we got to be great friends. Uh, his, his name was uh, Peter. And um, my first year when I was watching black and white films, classic films. I was, I loved them all. And I was getting kind of overwhelmed by all of them, but there was one that stuck out, stood out to me and I would just sat there stunned through the whole thing. Uh, and that was Citizen Kane. So that would be Orson Welles uh, as my number one pick. He, as far as I'm concerned, you look back at the forties and I, and I agree with Kate in that the forties is very much the seventies and that it, it was just, you know, the studio system was was really revving up and uh, a lot of amazing groundbreaking films were coming through. But there was one artist, man, that just it was just a hot knife straight through everything that was going on. Uh, and that was Orson Welles. Um, I think Citizen Kane, when you watch the filmmaking of it, when you watch uh, a Lady from Shanghai, especially the ending with uh in the house of mirrors uh even magnificent and ambersons and and macbeth he is such a punk in terms of how he does his filmmaking you know he was and i love studio filmmaking but he wasn't going to have any of that he's like fuck you i'm going to see the ceilings we're going to put cameras in the floors uh we're going to play with time uh we're we're gonna he's so playful in his filmmaking. He's just, he's so creative. It, it's, I love that he came out in the forties, but at the same time, I feel like he came out so soon in terms of his approach of filmmaking that just the world wasn't ready for the guy, you know? And I think that's why after Citizen Kane came out, um, which filmmaker, it just cast such a large shadow um, and influenced so many filmmakers. I mean, even just going into the 50s when Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick started, one of the filmmakers he mentioned was Orson Welles as major inspiration. Um, the reasons why Orson Welles influences filmmakers and artists of all types is not because they're supposed to like Citizen Kane. It's because even when you watch Citizen Kane right now, it's so unique. It's so unique even to like 2022. You watch Citizen Kane, I guarantee you, you've never seen anything like it before or since. And yes, more of the power was taken away from him as a filmmaker um, later on, immediately into Magnificent Andersons, but even more later on, he was chasing after money for the rest of his career. And he has so many lost uh, uh, masterpieces because he was cobbling together pieces of film that he was, you know, that he could at a time. Um, even in those cobbled together, you know, 
messes, sorry, Chase, messes. Um, <laughs> you guys see- weren't, sorry to interrupt, you guys weren't here Friday. That's where the, <laughs> you still see how just raw and brilliant the guy is. No one else was in his orbit to his own to his own detriment. Was he, was he a massive egotistical dick? Yeah, but he he his work matched it. You know, he was he there was a reason, and uh, uh, I just he's one of the most original artists. I mean, let alone filmmakers. Like, one of the most original artists the world has ever seen. I put him up there with, uh, you know, Vincent Van Gogh for painting, uh, the Beatles, you know, for music, um, just as examples. But he, his artistry transcends filmmaking for me. It's, it's such, he's such an artist. <clears throat> and I'm glad Freeman had his personal uh, experience with Citizen Kane last year because it is it is an influencing movie. It influences you when you're like at a point where you're sitting there going, I don't have any spark left in me. I'm exhausted. You know, I can't, I'm done with all of this. You go back and you can watch Citizen Kane and you see just the raw creativity and the discipline it took for him to make something like that with such just such a team around him well think Um, about the perseverance too i mean he had to fight a lot of people a lot of organizations just to get his work out there that's why randolph hurst he's fighting randolph hurst oh yeah Yeah, it almost it almost wasn't released right because of that because it was considered um slander and i mean it was a written word part so i'm sure they could get him on libel too yep yep it's it he persevered and got his art out there and it's what can i say it's phenomenal yeah i just wanted i love how you just spoke about that just the whole context of it the comparisons i knew you were going to mention vincent van gogh i love that and you know i think people in even more present in more present time um i think with greatness people I don't want to go veer too far off on the track. And I have a point here. I think people want to not all, but many want to take away from that. They want to find something wrong with that. So I, I know that people are going to listen to this podcast and give you pushback for the Beatles because people, and it's like, you cannot undermine the greatness of the Beatles. You just can't, you can sit there and pick it apart and people do, but I want to list. I want to see their list of music and what they've done and what they they were they sleeping in closets at seventeen years old and you know touring. I mean, just it, anyway, I'm going off, but people want to minimize and tear apart greatness, and I think with that, Wells definitely falls into that category, and they were constantly trying to rip them apart, but. Todd, you bring up such great points because so many, even to this day, I love, you know, Freeman talking about that. Bob Danovich, who ended up, Orson ended up being a mentor to him. He said, well, you know, I, in his interviews, he'll say, well, you know, I was supposed to make a, a film by the time I was 25 because Wells made his, you know, Kane at 26. So I thought I was a failure because I made my first one. I think he made his first one at like 28. Um and yeah, he was such a he was um, such an inspiration to so many. And um, I actually was having a conversation the other day, and I wrote this quote down. I'm going to paraphrase it. It's not going to be verbatim. Um, it's from Kane. Again, I watched this in one of my first. Well, not the first, but one of my first film studies classes. And I loved the quote. I I don't remember if it was his lawyer or his publicist. And he's sitting in his office and he said something to the effect of, it's not hard to make a lot of money when what you want to do is make a lot of money. And I think that quote for anyone that feels like they want to give up kind of to your point, Todd, with everything going on. And, um, and we have it in, even with the craziness of the world aside in this field, 
in any field, when you're out there on your own and you're trying to forge a new way, um, it's so easy to give up. But if you want something and that's your sole focus, you're going to get that. So I just loved that quote. It's not it, it's not hard to make a lot of money when what you want to do is make a lot of money. If you put enough into what you want to do, you're going to get it. I loved that quote. I don't know. Yep. Something about it. If I didn't mention it before, if you're not familiar <clears throat> with the book, My Lunches with Orson, anybody familiar with that? What is it, Dennis? Well, a friend of Orson's, I forget his name, uh, had lunches with him on a regular basis and uh, with his um, approval, uh, recorded them. And uh, he put them into a book called My Lunches with Orson. And Orson talks about all kinds of fascinating stuff. Um, it's cool. a great book. It's a great book. And it's awesome. great revealing about his, his life. And he knew everybody, politicians, you know, obviously Hollywood. Um, and it's, uh, it's great. It's really great. It was in the, the last 10 years of his life, I guess. So he has a pretty good perspective on everything. But check that out. It's, if you like Orson, you'll love that book because it's all him. Thanks, yeah. Dennis. So that's a good point. I just wanted to interject real quick. And Todd, you put up a good face, but we all know your favorite Orson Welles movie is Transformers: The Movie. So <laughs> it was the only let's one I not saw even mess around here. It's Unicron, baby. That's for sure. I okay. love. It's not in this decade, but Touch of Evil. How great was that film? Oh yes, yeah. yes, Kate. You're number one. Now, guys, are we going to come back and do honoraries? Or I, I th- oh, interdisperse them in there. Okay, because yeah, no I one forgot to that, mention them. So I can, wh- however you want me to do it. Yeah, well, number one right now. And then we'll come back on honorary uh, messages. HMs. Um, so my number one, not ubiquitous within the 40s decade, but I'm sure you guys aren't going to be surprised with my other picks that Charlie Chaplin is my number one. Fantastic. I think I talked ad nauseum about Chaplin, so but I'm sure there's a way that we can intersperse it into this discussion. But um, I just think that, and I'm, I'm sure you can figure out who my HM is, which would be um, Orson Welles, obviously. Um, but um yeah, I think, and it also goes to the point of possibly not in this decade, but other decades, he could be my number one. Um, Hitchcock as well. I just, I love Chaplin. I love the messages, the two films. Well, there's, he's four listed under four, but the two main ones, which was The Great Dictator and Monsieur Verdu, which I found by happenstance. And I think then I recommended it to Chase and you oh. fell in love with it, Chase. Oh, I fell in love with it. What a great film. I mean, the, the message, I just, the lines and the messages that come through in those two films, again, today, there's still beyond relevant they're happening in many ways um well not i mean yeah so i just think that um he what he was just a genius and the fact that he wrote and he starred in and he directed and he composed and i just you know i don't want to get everything 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 I actually scored a couple of um, Chaplin films from Chase last time he and I were like seeing each other in person. Uh, Chase was getting rid of some movies and I was able to- Did we still do that in person thing? That was the last time we met at Go, <laughs> and then you were like, you want some movies? And I'm like, of course I want some movies. So I followed <laughs> you to your studio. But I was able to snag uh, City Lights and uh, Modern Times from Chase. Oh, yeah. And uh, because the only chaplain I have in my collection uh, is Gold Rush. Um, so I've been looking to expand my chaplain collection. So those were those were two uh, uh, finds I was able to snag from him. Uh, but I'm still learning about Chaplin. I'm glad you mentioned, Kate, uh, the two movies, the two chaplain movies specifically in the 40s that compelled you to take him to number one because... <coughs> I, I still, I, I don't know a lot about Chaplin. I have a very kind of rudimentary understanding of his work. Um, and I've I'm, I'm been looking to 
expanded significantly. So this actually helps to know that he's your number one pick of the 1940s. Um, so I, it, that's great. I appreciate that. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I think with all of us, like I was saying, I think some of these categories and going through certain years and focuses on just American films, for example, I think it's also pushing me to watch things that I normally wouldn't, but yeah, Chaplin also just, I mean, his, he, in, on a certain level, um, Harold Lloyd as well kind of dominated the silent film era. Chaplin's, I mean, just genius from what I already mentioned and what he's done, but also with the physical comedy. I mean, I, he's just right up there with one of the greatest of all times, if not the greatest. And um, yeah, just like I said too, just the, the subjects that he touched upon are really tough to deal with. And he was able to do it in a way to get the message across um, that this is, this is unfortunately humanity. And there's, you see the good and the bad sides of humanity in both of those films. Right. And um, yes. Yeah. And, and just such a contrast and the fact that on many levels, some of those things still happen today or could have a tendency to happen today. Um, and it just also signifies his prescient vision, his, his in touch with what was going on then and also um, his genius. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that Todd, you get to enjoy some of his other films, Modern Times. That was with, with um, was it Paulette Godard? I'm, I can't believe I'm forgetting his fourth wife. Those were some of my, um, she was also in The Great Dictator. They were not married at the time, but there was something about the chemistry between those two um, that, brought out his playfulness. Um, I don't think it was always easy for her, especially with the great dictator, because they were no longer together. That's got to be challenging working in that environment. But um, I think that there's something about those two and their chemistry in modern times. And she just has this beautiful playfulness. And of course, you guys probably know that he composed and wrote Smile, which was probably most famously noted not so much for the ending song in modern times, but um, Nat King Cole singing it, you know? So um, yeah, that's it. Chaplin, number one, love him. Always <laughs> and forever. Okay, Freeman, you're number one. Um, so actually my number one isn't my favorite uh, director or directors as it is uh, of the 40s, which are definitely um, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who made like four, at least four just home run movies. Um, but I've talked about them a lot and I will actually mention them later on. Um, but so I, for my number one, I want to also talk about Preston Sturgis, uh, taking a note from Dennis's book, um, wow. because Preston Sturgis never made a, hasn't made of the movies that I've seen of his, uh, he hasn't made one that I absolutely love, but he hasn't made one that isn't objectively a terrific movie. Um, and it, it, what's striking is how many he, how many of these he made. His career is almost entirely in the 40s, yep. and in 1940 he made Christmas in July, which is really good. The Great McGinty, which is great, and then in 41 he made The Lady Eve and Sullivan's Travels, which are like two of the greatest comedies ever made. Uh, in and in 42, he made the Palm Beach story. 44, he made Miracle at Morgan's Creek. Also in 44, he made Hail a Conquering Hero. And then in 48, he made my personal favorite. He made other movies along the way, but um, he's a real workhorse. Um, but my personal favorite movie of his is uh, Unfaithfully Yours with Rex Harrison, which is this really experimental for the time black comedy about this guy who thinks his wife's cheating on him and it's vignettes of like different ways like of uh 
getting back at her for it as he's like fantasizing while also conducting an orchestra and he's like conducting in his mind how to do it and it's not a perfect movie but it's an incredible there's incredible style and again just experimentation in the filmmaking that when you watch it um thankfully i saw most of these on the criterion channel they were doing a thing on uh preston sturgis and uh unfaithfully yours is a really striking movie to finish on because all of his movies beforehand are these really intricately written madcap comedies that always have a sort of ironic twist at the end but they're they're very uh competent isn't the right word but they're they're very like well-made but there isn't a ton of flair to them in the filmmaking and then and unfaithfully yours it's just this really striking departure and it feels like a real graduation um from his previous work i haven't seen the the few movies he made afterwards uh but yeah i think preston sturgis is one of the most interesting filmmakers ever um because of how bright and short his his fire burned um which one which movies of his haven't you seen freeman um i've seen all the ones that i listed so all the ones that i didn't list i uh, haven't miracle of morgan's creek and hail the conquering hero you've seen yep. yeah, cool hail the conquering hero is my second favorite hail the conquering hero uh, is great i haven't seen hail the conquering hero is that good yeah. That was terrific. I think it's better than Miracle at Morgan Creek, but I think that's a controversial statement. So, well, yeah, we're here more. to make controversy. <laughs> you know, the uh, one of the things that I uh, remember from Palm Beach story watching it that I made made an impact on me was in the in the first part of the film, one of the guys going down the stairs uh, slips and falls, and instead of uh, following following him down with the frame, he falls out of frame. And I thought, wow, that was that was cool. That was a good idea because <laughs> all of a sudden, and he's gone. You know, um, so yeah, he's a, he's a, one of one of certainly a, one of my favorites, and and all those all those films. I'm glad I spaced them out over the years. Um, I did the exact opposite. He he um, he also did a really interesting thing where he, especially in his writing, which his writing process was he would like essentially perform the entire movie to his secretary who would write it down. Um, so he was just like acting it out with like voices and stuff. And apparently he was really good, but nobody else ever saw him do it. Um, but he, he gives little characters. I think it's Palm Beach story. There's a part where it's like, they ask a, cab driver who's in one scene like like where's a, the best place to get a divorce or something and the cab driver just launches into this monologue where he's like well if you want it fast and cheap you can go here but if you want to get the most bang for your buck you go there <laughs> and it's just this like weird little accent on this throwaway role that completely uh steals the scene and it's his work is filled with that so yeah you know having claudette i colbert, need to catch up on sturgis i need to catch up on him having claudette colbert in uh palm beach story was uh oh yeah one of my favorites <laughs> um yeah okay dennis you're number one well this is a tough one um, I, I wanted to uh, revisit uh, John Huston, who's not my number one, but there was a there was a, a cool quote about him uh, by Peter Flint, who said he shot economically, eschewing the many protective shots favored by timid directors and edited cerebrally so that financial backers would have trouble trying to cut scenes. If only Orson had, <laughs> had known more about that. <laughs> um, but I thought that was cool. Yeah, it's it's uh, tough to vote against John Huston, Maltese Falcon, Treasures here, Madre Key Largo, we've already talked about. Um, uh, and then it comes, and Orson, tough to go past Orson uh, be, for all kinds of reasons. But, but uh, since we're just in the 40s, I think I have to go with John Ford. Mm. Uh, and the films of his that I've seen and love, Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley, My Darling Clementine, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Fort Apache. Um, so uh, three of those are, are Westerns and two of them aren't. But um, 
You know, when Orson Welles was asked for the three greatest film directors, he said John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that, that, that said a lot uh, coming, coming from him. Um, Ford was an asshole. And uh, if you watched uh, Peter Bogdanovich's um, uh, film, short film interviewing him, you really see it. Uh, there was also that story with, uh, and I don't remember what film it was, it had John Wayne in it, which um, he's in Fort Apache and she wore a yellow ribbon. But anyway, I think it was uh, when Wayne was younger and um, Ford asked him, he's in the middle of a shoot, you know, the whole crew's there and they're setting up the scene and stuff. He says, um, so, uh, you know, what do you think, uh, what do you think so far? And uh, John Wayne suckered in and said, uh, I, I think he asked about a particular character. He goes, well, I you know, I, I think her costume could be a little different. And Ford goes, stop. All right, everybody, come on down. Brings all the people down, all the light down, everybody, all the crew. And he says, um, Mr. Wayne here doesn't like her costume. <laughs> you know, and it's like, he's gone, well, wait, didn't you ask me? And, you know, he took the opportunity to uh, insult and, uh, and um, uh, basically uh, put down uh, his actors in a lot of ways. But in some ways, he got good performances out of them, too, by doing that. Now, that wouldn't be my technique because um, uh, that, that, that doesn't work. Uh, it, it works for very few people, but it obviously worked for him. And um, there's another way. There's always another way. I got to inter interject. And that's what most people feel. But I hear well, you, there's, Dennis. There's a better way. I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to put put artists down to get the best out of them. That was that's what I'm saying. There's always a better way. Like to say that that's how he got those performances out of them. I mean, I can name a bunch of directors that do that. That and they're not working anymore either. So oh, sure. When well, we get to Kubrick, it. I'll have words. He'd been <clears> yeah. So for so long that I, you know, I'm sure, you know, I mean, directing from what 1913. And if you look at his list of films, holy crap. He must have just gotten to the point where it's like, okay, I've seen this a million times. I don't want to see it anymore. Yeah. No, that kind of that kind of Yeah, but you don't want that that sort of artistic uh misdemeanor in your mist. No, you really don't. You really don't. You it, really don't. It brings yeah. I think it brings everybody's level down. Has ever have you all seen uh, Bogdanovich interviewing uh, him, that, that short film? So I've, I've like scoured all of Bogdanovich's interviews, documentaries. And um, Dennis, when I do find it and remember which one, he does discuss that interview. And almost Peter was so I know people have their opinions about Peter, too. He was such like a good hearted person, even his falling out with Orson Welles, he excused and he was like, I love him. I forgave him. It wasn't like his falling out because Orson kind of down talked him on, a, I think, on The Tonight Show. But I think he addresses the interview you're talking about on maybe his this one day since yesterday it's a great mm -hmm. documentary on Bogdanovich if you haven't seen and it's it's heartbreaking but it's real good and he might have actually addressed that and almost don't quote me on this but I think he kind of explained why he, um Ford was like that and I think he actually worked with Ford too didn't he Dennis uh you know I don't know other than that film uh, I forget what it was called. It has John Ford in the name. Yeah, uh, I'm like I think he did it in the '70s, right? Directed by John Ford. Yep, here it is, John 1971. Yep, that's it. That's it. Well, um, I don't know. He obviously admired him, and uh, you know Ford. I mean, yes. at one point in the interview, Ford gets up and leaves. He said, "Not, I'm not answering that question." He gets up and leaves, then he comes back. Um, but you know, it's. Um, Again, as a human being, I would never pick John Ford, but as a director, it's really tough to overlook those 40s films and other films as well. Um, my Darling Clementine is my favorite Western film because he was really, really meticulous about making sure that everything was historically accurate. And um, the, uh, she, the, the trilogy, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Fort Apache, and uh, Rio... Grande. What, what, what? Wasn't it the Rio Grande? Rio Grande, Rio Grande, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, probably the best one of those, but, um, yeah. or no, maybe, anyway, uh, they're all, they're all great. And, uh, 
you know, he uh, he created that mystique of the of the American West. It really didn't exist like that. I mean, the 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 clothing and the sets and everything were accurate, but you know, the whole uh, the whole attitude was was really not. But he he created that mystique about the American West. Before that, it was all um, you know really uh, kind of infantile um, movies. Westerns weren't considered to be until Stagecoach. Westerns weren't considered to be um, serious, serious stories, serious films. Anyway, so, uh, so yeah, John Ford. And um, to, uh, to get to him, I had to leap over uh, Orson and uh, John Huston, and that was tough. <clears throat> and the others I mentioned, Capra, Chaplin, Curtiz, and Hawks. We didn't, nobody picked Hawks, but uh, he did some, he did some really uh, good films too. And so there you have it. I rest my case. Good evening, this is Chase Bailey of Left Bank Films. We really hope you enjoyed our podcast, The Love of Film. Tonight's episode was episode three, which dealt with our favorite directors from the 1940s. For further information about our podcast, please visit leftbankfilms.com slash the love of film. Thank you very much.